Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, last episode, we were thrilled to be joined by Jerry Gaylord, Caroline Bird, and Steve Duda, and we reviewed X-Men number 59, which was the culmination of the Larry Trask and Sentinels story. Basically all you need going into this issue, uh, the Sentinels captured basically every mutant that is introduced into the Marvel world at this point, and uh, they're all still in stasis tubes <laughs> and then cyclops convinced the sentinels to fly into the sun that's kind of all you need uh <laughs> it got hurt right at the end because alex is just a, a walking trauma all the time and uh they have called a man named dr carl lycos who's an old colleague of xavier's to help him but lycos is seen on the last page uh draining someone's energy weirdly and we will continue with him today in x-men number 60. Uh, today's book is from September 1969. We will uh, get to that in the latter half of the podcast. I am thrilled to be joined uh, by returning guest Marcus Onasso and two new guests, uh, Jamie Foy and Steens. I, uh, I'm going to let each of you introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about where we might know you from. And I gave no one any warning here, so you're going to scramble your brains. What's the worst experience you've ever had with a psychiatric professional? So, can you think it over for just a moment? <laughs> uh, Steens, are you well uh, willing to go first? Let us know your gender yes, um, where we know you're thing. from. Yeah, oh, that's yes. actually about me. I am always willing to go first because <laughs> so many people have like anxieties about like being the first to do anything. I'll do it. I'll help you out, but you gotta go second. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, hello, my name is Steens. I'm a cartoonist uh, and editor and professor. I'm the current uh, creator on the syndicated comic strip, Heart of the City. It is a daily series that you can read in your local newspapers or online, however you like. And uh, the first book, the first collection of the series just came out a few months ago. So that's really cool. Um, and then I also teach cartooning at Webster University here in St. Louis. Um, this semester has been a semester. <laughs> Teaching is teaching. That's really the, the best I can say about that. Um, but I love to do it. It's it's uh, it's actually I consider it my um, my other passion job because if I wasn't you know doing comics full time, it's very very possible I would be uh, a teacher full time. Um, but what's holding me back? I love money. <laughs> I really really love not struggling. <laughs> So I'm gonna stick with this drawing thing for a while. <laughs> but um, I also edit comics. I edit for individuals, small publishers, um, pitch reads, all sorts of things that you can uh, talk about. And you, you probably know me from my first book that I did called Archival Quality. It won the uh, Dwayne McDuffie Award for Diversity in 2018. And possibly you might know me from one of the creators of the standard comic script that I just released this year. And uh, if you need a standard script template to work off for your first comic ever, you have one. It's free and available for you to use. So yeah. What are your gender pronouns and what's the worst experience you ever had with a psychiatric professional? Okay, so gender pronouns, they, them. Um, worst experience with a psychiatric professional. Um, you know, I think it may be when I was like struggling with my Graves disease, which I am fully cured of now. I'm like, okay. Um, because the thyroid 
control so many things. It was controlling my mental health as well. And so I had gone to a therapist for anxiety and I had always thought like, there's something wrong here. I, I don't think therapy works for me. And the therapist um, was like, I mean, maybe it won't. And I was like, <laughs> maybe it won't. You're not supposed to tell me that, you know? <laughs> um, but the, the worst part though, is that um, I was, I felt so like vulnerable and stuff. And I could very clearly see that she would look at me in the eye. And I was just like, what is that all about? So yeah, I definitely like that turned me off going to uh, a therapist um, because I was like, well, dang, if they can't even like make eye contact with me, how are they going to get it all up inside my head? So uh, yeah, and then I got cured of Graves' disease and I no longer have anxiety. So honestly, the therapy wouldn't have helped. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm, uh, I've been smiling the whole time already, which means we're going to have a great podcast this evening. <laughs> um, I, uh, I am a Missouri boy myself, uh, but from the Ozarks. So I've actually never been to St. Louis, but it's fun to always chat with people from St. Louis uh, or from Missouri. Have you ever been to the Ozarks? Yes, I have uh, once. And then I kind of plan on going in a few weeks, too. But we're kind of figuring out if that's something we want to do, you know, for the fall. Everybody's scared of it because of that show on Netflix now, but that's not how it was. <laughs> oh no, the show on Netflix is like way more glamorous. <laughs> and like the Ozarks is nothing. It's just water and grass, you know? <laughs> uh, let's go to Marcus on next. Hi, my friend. How are you? Hi, I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me back. Uh, so same questions, uh, gender pronouns, where we'd know you from, and uh, what's the worst experience you've ever had with a psychiatric professional? Yeah, uh, gender pronouns are he, him. Uh, I'm the co-creator and writer of uh, Voracious, which was published by Action Lab Comics, and I currently write By the Horns, which is coming out from Scout Comics. So the new issue actually drops Wednesday this week. So, um, And I'm a host on the Metalheads podcast, which comes out monthly. And um, I've never been to a therapist, so I have never, I've never been stressed or had anxiety ever. Um, I've never had any, I had a great upbringing, so just, I've never been to a therapist, so I can't give you anything there. No one has ever tried to drain your life and then changed into a pterodactyl? <laughs> no, I wish, because I, I would love to eat a dinosaur, so I would absolutely soar on. <laughs> uh, the first time I had Marcus on on the show, I uh, I had not read by the horns, but I now have read by the horns, and it's so fucking great. It's so good, uh, front to back. I've shared it with my kids. Uh, we had a violent content warning because you know it's still for kids, even though it's bloody. And we had so much fun reading through it together. Uh, and your uh, your artist Jason Muir is wonderful, uh, yeah, so yeah. great. If you have not read by the horns, it's uh, uh, feminist dystopian unicorn monster world it's lovely <laughs> i really i really enjoyed it thank you i really appreciate that and then uh lastly let's go over to uh jamie foy hi jamie how are you hey hey um so my pronouns are he him uh what you know would know me from is i've worked on uh indie books called neverminds and sentinels from drumfish productions um I've also, with X-Men related, uh, I've been told that I'm the most famous X-Men artist who's never drawn X-Men professionally before. I guess if you Google a character, you always find my art. So I was like, okay, I'll take it. 
I'll take that uh, little it's title. It's a strange superlative, but it's a superlative <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> and uh, 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 mental health. I would say probably a friend of mine was going through some troubles and I wanted to know how best to help him. So I started going to a therapist to get the right tools to help talk to him. And everything was like, well, tell me about your childhood. And it's like, I'm not here about that. I'm not here <laughs> wow. for that. And it got to the point where I'd seen the person like four times. And it got to the point where I was just like, if you want to talk about my childhood, I'm just going to go elsewhere. Okay. So I think that stems from a conflict from your childhood. And I was like, <laughs> Goodbye. That's crazy. You it was that, just that nonstop. Was a great thing to do to go there to try to help your friend. And then they just didn't even listen yeah. to what you had to say. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. I, uh, and lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I got to, well, uh, just to give a, uh, uh, an intro there, I got to meet Jamie at FlynnCon recently, which was so fun. When I was in New York City, uh, we crossed paths and I love your art and uh, it was a good, did you have a fun time at FlynnCon, Jamie? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, we, we go almost every year and I've got a lot of friends that show their artwork there. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really a lovely time. I hope to go back again and again. Uh, so it was great. Okay, so lastly, uh, I already said my name. I, uh, I am a mental health professional, and I also help teach new mental health professionals. And one of the interesting things about mental health professionals is most people get into the field because they've been through something shitty in their lives, and they want to help other people not go through shitty things. But it requires you putting your shit together in order to be effective at your job. And there's some out there that just don't do that. And they have very weird or obsessive ways of thinking. So the story I'm going to tell really quickly was I was a uh, graduate student. This is many years ago. And we had to do some like interviewing with uh, professionals who were training us in different things. I will not use this man's name, but he sat down with me and he was trying to teach me about Rorschach cards. You guys know the character from Watchmen, like the mm -hmm. inkblot drawings? And he's showing me pictures and he's like, these are really effective in therapy. Like, what do you see when you look at this? And I'm like, mm, I see a butterfly. He's like, most people see a vagina. And I'm like, yeah, that's not what I see, buddy. And then he goes to the next card and he's like, do you see a vagina in this one? He mentioned the word vagina about nine times and I was not out at the time, but that likely would not have been what I had seen. <laughs> Even were I not gay, and it was so strange that I've never liked Rorschach drawings ever since. So that was my, my every time I look at one now, I'm just gonna think vagina. Vagina. Love like takes like that from professionals, you know. Like as a mental health professional, this is what I actually don't like. You know, I was just reading Christina Tosi's cookbook. I got it for my birthday this week, and um she wrote in there how like sifting flour is a waste of time and i was like what a take christina tosi but like <laughs> you're a baker supreme so i, I want to hear about what your takes are so it was really cool that you have that idea <laughs> oh i could talk about the fallibilities of the mental health profession for three hours easy and i could tell all sorts of crazy <laughs> stories but that's another podcast <laughs> Um, so I kind of want to start, Steens, with just hearing a little bit of your journey. You're a very big name out there in the comics field as a person who's kind of a trendsetter. I know several people who have consulted with you or been to your conferences. Uh, when I booked you and then told people I was 
going to interview you. People were like, oh my God, like they were, they were really Hello. surprised and pleased. <laughs> uh, and everyone had lovely things to say. Tell me a little bit uh, about your journey as a comics fan into professional, if you will. Yeah, of course. I'd also love to hear all the lovely things they said. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, so I had always been into like animation because TV was just like a huge part of my life growing up, especially as a young child. Like it was something that we kind of did as a family. Like my most vivid memories from my early childhood is once it's 5.30, we go to the dining room and we put on Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> and, and then after Dragon Ball is over, then we watch Justice League. So it's just like a really cool family memory that had gotten me interested in those types of stories. And so ever since then, I had always tried to find the right books to read, the different uh, comics. And I actually didn't even really get into comics until I was out of high school. So while I was in high school, cause you know, you're like under your parents' house, you kind of like, you read the kind of things that they tell you to read or like, okay for you to read, you know? So those first few years um, as like a teenager and like really learning about what I like, um, it was mostly manga, which is still great. You know, it's just a different, you know, subculture. So I actually, I feel like I started in manga and then moved over into American comics around the time when I was 18 and off to college. Um, but as I was reading these comics, I was thinking about how much fun I was having getting to know these characters and their backstories and talking to other comic nerds about that sort of thing. And it like, it reminded me of a time I was talking to my friend, Dan. We had both got into comics around the same time. He said, I love going into a comic book store because no matter if you are a Marvel fan or a DC fan, you're still a comic book fan. And everyone has that same like level playing field. And I was like, wow, I don't experience that at all. <laughs> my experience in a comic shop is what are you doing here? You know? So I didn't never had that positive comics experience either, but I still really loved the subculture. And it wasn't until I like, took a chance and was like, let me please work at this comic book store. And I told them I was gonna come back every week until they hired me. And eventually after like doing drawings for people on free comic book day and to um, doing their trivia contest, which we studied so hard for, and then one, they called me and they were like, I heard you want to work here. And I was like, yeah, when do I come in or interview? And they're like, your date starts tomorrow, you know? <laughs> so after that, I was like, my goal, my mission is to make sure that other people who come into this comic book store are going to feel the way that Dan felt, which was you are on a level playing field. Okay. It doesn't matter like who you are, what you look like, what you're into, you come in here and you like to read, me too, bro, you know, we are the same. So after working at a comic book store, I really was trying to push my art. When you're in school and you like wanna to go to school for art, there's not a whole lot of support. At least there wasn't in the early 2000s, you know? So <laughs> I went to school for art, not knowing what I wanted to do in art. And of course, when I couldn't get the art job, which I didn't even know what that art job was. I was like, I guess I'm off on a bad path. <laughs> and um, it wasn't until I finally got this job at the comic book store when I realized all of my training, all of my background work of like illustration and really looking into comics, like 
I should just make comics. And that didn't come to mind until I saw Brittany Williams' work on Samurai Jack. Sure. And I was like, wait a second. Brittany Williams looks like me and is making comics. And, I, and then that's the only thing that made me realize, duh, I should be doing the thing that I love the most, which is making comics. So I started making comics in my local groups here. Every city has, you know, like a local group of comic fans that get together and draw and stuff. And so that's how I started. I got into those local groups and I got my uh, bigger start joining the Valkyries, which was a, uh, a group for women uh, that worked in comic book stores. And of course, 2010s, that's when it was like hidden. Like this is the time for us to be like, yo, we are here, <laughs> you know? So I used that platform to put on ladies nights, to start uh, Comics University, to travel to cons and talk to people about, you know, selling to people at comic stores. And just, I just wanted to be a part of all of it. And so I became a part of all of it, you know? Um, and then it wasn't until Ivy reached out to me, who was also a Valkyrie at the time, and was like, how do you feel about maybe doing something long form? Because I see that you like making comics and stuff. And I was like, stop what you're saying right now. I'm already in. Let's go. <laughs> and that's where Archival Quality came in. And uh, we had originally wanted it to be a webcomic. Uh, we had it all set up. We had like days and days already planned, you know, like in our bank. And then we saw that Oni was doing open submissions. And so we were like, look, there's literally nothing to lose here because if we don't get it, we're just gonna put it up online like we planned to. So we are like, let's go, you know? And then of course we got it and we were like, oh no, <laughs> we don't know what we're doing here. Um, so it was a, a great learning experience doing my first graphic novel. Um, but it was, it was also a great experience because it was, it was with a company that had been making comics for a long time. And so because it was with a comics company, I felt like I learned a lot about creating comics and editing comics and the whole process of making a comic from having my book there. So while I've gotten working on my book, I end up working at uh, the library after my comic book store closes. When I get into the library, I'm like, this, now this is it. <laughs> this is just me changing my focus and being like, no, this is it now. Um, I, you know, I love being able to talk to people about comics and help them find something that they like and express themselves in this sequential illustration format. And I can do that at a library without the thought of, I need to make money. And it felt amazing. And I was like, I need to do this forever. Like, I don't know what else I'm going to do in the rest of my life, but I'm going to make sure that I'm helping in this community, in this comics community, because how is it going to live if we don't keep bringing young and new creators in, you know? Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time at the library. I set up their first comic con at that library. I started their zine library so you could actually come in and check out the zines and like i was saying before we started like really the only thing that was keeping me from staying there was the money and unfortunately if you don't have a master's degree in library sciences there's only so far you can go and that's kind of where my journey ended because I didn't want to go back to school. I felt let, let down by school, you know? It was expensive. They didn't tell me what to do with my career. Why would I go back, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm already out here making money. 
why would I go back to school? So I just decided, you know, I just need to try and find something else. And that's when lo and behold, the social media uh, person was available as a job at Lion Forge. And it was there in St. Louis. So I was like, I know so many people from my event planning, from my coordination, from just being in the comics industry here in St. Louis, I would be the person for the job. And of course I got the job. And that's when things got even bigger. I was going to cons. I was able to uh, get together with uh, creators of color and like make these dinners for people so you can meet other creators of color. And um, then I moved into editorial because they saw that my skills will be better for editorial than for social media. And in my head, I was like, thank God. <laughs> At first I said no to moving because I am um, Virgo rising and I don't like change. And I was happy with what I was doing, but they're like, we really do feel like what your goals are match with the goal of being an editor as well. And I, and they're right, you know, because I want to bring people in this community. I want to make sure people had access. And honestly, being an editor is the perfect way to do that. You know, you get to choose who gets those jobs, right? And so I made it my mission to be, uh, as my friend calls me, the great connector. So if you need help finding something, I probably know someone that can help you, you know? And that's what I feel like I was put on here to do is to help everyone meet everyone else and really build something together. So yeah, so I stopped working at Lion Forge for, uh, you know, gossipy reasons, which I'm sure we can get into later. <laughs> um, but uh, I started doing freelance and I was continuing to make my comics and an editor came over to me and saw my background in editorial and my um, organization skills, really being able to do something for an extended period of time without any mistakes. And that's when they were like, what about syndicated comic strips? And I was like, these are the comics I grew up on. So yeah, I mean, I don't know what, I, I didn't go to school for syndicated comics, but if you're asking me, that means you think I might be able to do it. So yeah, let's give this a try. So I, I auditioned for a, a good period of time. And then eventually uh, they offered me the position and I took it. So here I am now, I've got Heart of the City and I've been doing that a comic for two years. Um, I've also had other book deals. I'm working on a graphic novel right now called Side Quest. It's a uh, history of tabletop role-playing games. Um, I feel like I'm always working on this book. If anyone sees me in any podcast or anything at all, it, I'm also working. I just, I have to finish <laughs> this book. I'm not a marathon. I'm a sprinter. And if I don't get this done, I'll die. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, that's what I do now. I work on Heart of the City. I do other books as well. Because, of course, I like to try all sorts of comics. And I teach in the fall. So, yeah. You teach uh, which classes? And uh, and just kind of a side question, although it's a big one. Uh, what types of advice do you give to people on what makes a good story? I know that's a really broad question because there's a lot of types of stories. Uh, but you, you have a great mind for story structure. Those are among the lovely things that I heard from people, by the way, is that you give incredible advice about story. So what do you teach? And uh, what, what types of advice do you give about story? So I teach cartooning. Um, I tell people that this is the very basics of comic making. 
if you can do a three panel strip of someone walking, slipping on a banana peel and then laying on their back being like, I should have saw that coming. Like that's basic comics. And every comic that you want to make in the future, you kind of have to know the tools, you know? And so that's what I teach. I teach cartooning. So simplification, um, keeping to your story, limited uh, space, you know, all the things that is the hardest part of, of making a comic. The easy stuff is the idea. It's the actual doing that makes it a little hard. Uh, so that's what I teach. And then advice for anyone trying to make a story. That is a big question. And you know, it's the first time I've ever been asked that question. Of all the interviews I've done in my time, I have never been asked that. And it's such a good question. So uh, kudos to you for that. I think what makes a good story, no matter what kind of story it is, is that you want the reader to walk away with something. You know, what is the point of this? If you are writing a story because you just want to draw people fighting, okay, <laughs> but what's gonna keep them hooked? It's not gonna just be the fight scenes, you know, cause you can only really go so far before someone is like, but why am I watching this? Why am I reading this? You know, what's the hook? So think about what do you want the reader to leave with? After they've read your book, after they've read your comic, played your game, what do you want them to feel? Because at the base of it, if you can get that across, no matter any other shortfalls you have, it's a su successful story. There are comics out there. Ugh, there are so many people who are like, oh, I can't draw. I can only do a stick figure. And it's like, okay, but that's still drawing. You know, you don't have people with like shit handwriting saying, I can't write. Like, yes, you can. You just aren't doing, you just can't do it very well, you know? So it's the same thing with drawing, you know? And it's the same thing with, with storytelling. It's not as hard as you think it is. You just have to ask yourself the right questions. And the biggest question is, what am I doing here? What is the reader doing here? I mean, there have been plenty of comics out there where I thought that the art was dog shit, but I'm like so, so, so judgy and picky because I'm an artist. <laughs> sure. So, but I will still read it and still love it and still keep it with me because of that story. You know, when I think about like when I would sell comics to people, I would always ask about, you know, what are your hobbies? What are your interests? Don't tell me what kind of comics you like to read at because I'm just going to show you the same comic that you like to read. What do you like? You know, what's something that's going to grab you personally? Because that's what's really going to get someone to buy a comic book is how is it going to relate to me? Marcus, do you want to follow up on that one? What makes a good story? Yeah, I'd agree with her. I mean, for me, you know, it's, it's the characters, really. It's like, a, can you identify with those characters right away? Because there are a lot of comic books that I feel like I read it and I don't really know what the character wants or, you know, why they're doing what they're doing in that first issue. It's like really important to me as a reader, but also as a writer. So, um, and I think that kind of takes care of, you know, at the end of the day, like Steen says, like, why, why, what are, what are people feeling at the end? What are you trying to give them? So if you can give them characters and their motivations and kind of create some character that people can identify with, even just one, I think that's that's the the heart of it. And then the story kind of flows from there, at least for me. So, but it's all about all the characters because I do when I do comic books, I write out character sheets. So you know who's the character, where they're going, 
how what they're doing affects other characters in the book, you know? And so I always have those, so I can always refer back to them like, okay, I don't want to lose the journey of each character in there because they, they have to have an arc. Um, That's so funny that you say, say that because that idea of writing down your character information and their whole journey and their changes and their uh, feelings about things, mm-hmm. I tell my clients to do that all the time. And people are always like, yeah, I don't really want to, though. And I'm like, but you have to, you know, because (laughs) as much as you want to get to that scene where someone's shooting out of a window. Yeah, that's a really cool scene to write and to draw, I'm sure. But you just kind of have to do the work beforehand as well. But you have to know where they're going, where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. If you don't understand them, then other people who are reading the book won't understand them. So I think that's really important. Yeah, I, mean, I think we both approach it kind of similarly because I'm also an editor. I actually worked at the American Association of School Librarians. I was the mm. managing editor there. So um, so I kind of come from that publishing world and then moved into comics. Yeah. So I don't think a lot of editors or comic publishers approach it exactly that way. So, yeah. um, but I think it's really good Like, because I was trained on how to do that. You know, I went to school for it. So um, I try to apply that to, to all my comics, but uh, yeah, chief among them is just being able to identify with those characters. You know, the best comics that I've read in my lifetime are the characters that are like, hey, I see a little bit of me in that person, or I can, I've gone through something like that. And, and so I, I want to go on this journey to see where he, she, or they is going, you know. Back in the uh, 2010 era, when I was working on the handbooks, uh, I part of my job was to read incoming scripts to uh, screen for, you know, what characters were appearing where, because continuity was kind of my job. And uh, I, I got this strong sense of like, you're reading a Jason Aaron script versus reading a uh, a Chuck Austin script versus reading a Anne Nascenti script. They're all just completely different approaches with the same type of, some people would use detailed characters, some would, uh, character descriptions, some would write out major long paragraphs about every panel with what everyone was wearing and how it looked and what angle the camera's at. Others would be much more loose in the way that they would approach it. So a 30 page script uh, might represent an eight page comic or a 22 page comic, depending on on who was putting it together. Uh, It was fascinating because there's no right way to do it necessarily, but there's a lot of wrong ways to do it. that there's just like there's a template that's going to work the best for you you know there's a lot of people who see a comic script and they think that that's the art and that is just a tool that is a tool from your writer to the rest of the team you know and if you the rest of your team can't read it it's not a good tool you know how and i think comics is it is a group effort at least that's how it historically has been i know a lot of publishers now uh, especially those big five publishers are wanting auteurs, people who can just do it all. But it's like part of how kind of where they started, it should be a group project. And if it's going to be a group project, even if it is just creator and editor, they have to be able to communicate. And the script is where you communicate with your creator. I think that if you have that down, you can handle any sort of situation. Because sometimes when you're doing just work for hire, you kind of treat your collaborators differently than if you're doing like a creator own series. But if you are using the same kind of treatment across for everyone, then you're set, you know? 
I find that a lot of comics are like assembly line style sometimes these days because it's yeah. just faster. <laughs> and if you're going to do it that way, if you're going to do it assembly line style, you should make sure your machine works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't like the assembly line style, but uh, I kind of get it because there's a lot of deadlines. A lot of these comics, if you're go- working for the big two or something, they're going to, yeah. they have to come out regularly. And sometimes they put them out like twice a month or something. Yeah. It's different. You're not picking the artist, the editor's doing that. So mm-hmm. I like, I mean, I do indie comics. I'm creating my own comics. So I, the collaboration is what I really enjoy with my artists. You know, I write full script, but sometimes I'll do it Marvel style where it's, I just kind of describe the action and then the artist comes in and draws it and then I'll put dialogue over it because, but that's only after I've developed like a trust with the artist. Yeah. And I feel like whenever I start working on a, a comic, I want the artist to be really invested. So we talk about everything, go have beers you know, go have dinner or something like that and discuss the whole that. story. My artist, Jason on By the Horns, he also did Voracious. You know, we we talk about everything. Like, let me know what you want to draw. Is there something you 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 want in the story that maybe I didn't think about? You know, we do all of that before we even start actually working on the comic. And that's so for perfect. me, it's like truly collaborative. That's that's what I, that's how I like doing it. I don't I actually don't want to just like hire an artist. I need to know I need to get to know the people even the colorist, like I want to talk to them, hang out with them on Zoom or something before we actually start working with them on that. Because they're all part of the team. If that, yeah. not everybody's on board and the engine's not like perfect, you know, it's not, it's not going to run. So um, that's I wish I really more comics would stick to that ethos because that's how I feel about them as well, is you want to have a really good relationship with your collaborators. So it sucks because on the one hand, it's like we should all be doing it this way. There should never be a situation where the writer and the artist have never spoken. That sounds fucking crazy to me. But I also am a realist and I know that that is what happens a lot of times. And if that is going to have to happen, you better know what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Which sucks, but. Jamie, what were uh, what would you consider a healthy writer artist uh, collaborative uh, energy? How do you how do you set up the stories that you decide you're going to draw or work on? Uh, well, in my experience, uh, I actually made a comic with my best friend, so it was like we we were just like sitting around and throwing around ideas of what we wanted to do, and then we we always came up with a fast pitch of like what is the book about so like uh for our book never minds it was charlie's angels meets hellboy so it was just like oh okay so you know we've got these three super powered women who go out and get the things that go bump in the night so uh it's we also tried to like really get people from different genres to read the book so we had one a uh, character who's was like the survivor of a serial killer. So we had like a really dark background for her, but then another one, uh, she was very, her background was like a, like small town cultish type stuff where people believe one thing, but that's not really what the truth is. So you're persecuting someone for some kind of small little thing that you don't know about so that that person must be evil or bad so it was we we've always tried to pull in uh stuff that would make people uh want to read but i think uh, characterization is the best i mean the best books that like i ever tell 
people to pick up are character are books that are driven by characterization. So like uh have you ever read A Wet Moon by Sophie Campbell? Yeah. That's that's if someone asks for a book to read, it's like start with Wet Moon or uh Lock and Key. Yeah. You know, it's like they're like, oh you're an X-Men fan and you don't tell people we'll start with X-Men. It's like, no, no. Go, go get these like little <laughs> contained worlds and go from there. X-Men is a hard place to start. Yeah. Especially it's like, or it's like if you, oh yeah. (laughs) It's like, if you have to start with X-Men, do like ultimate X-Men or something where it's like you start from the get go. Yes. Ultimate X-Men for those. (laughs) Yeah. So unless you really like pterodactyls, then start with (laughs) (laughs) X-Men. I do like pterodactyls. Uh, transitioning into uh, writing for the big two, there's indie comics, obviously, and then there's like the big stuff. There's a difference between being able to own and monitor and promote your own work. And then there's the the, the DC Marvel stuff where you get these opportunities to work on uh, characters who have an established chronology and continuity and history. Uh, and you get to tell big stories that are often more widely seen, but have much less creative control. Uh, it's it's a tricky thing to try to balance because when you're trying to do your own stuff, I think the promotion of it, for me at least, is the hardest part. The collaboration is is easy, but the promotion is really tricky. But when you uh, when you are working for bigger companies and you lose the creative control or the ability to uh, to Decide what is done with your stories, I suppose is the right way to phrase that. Uh, what advice, Steens, do you have for people who are kind of juggling one world versus the other? Um, I would say be able to be flexible going back and forth because it can be very easy to get into a routine and kind of do the same thing over and over again. And I feel like if you're doing more creator-owned stuff, you're more likely to try new things. Sure. Because um, you just have more of the opportunity to try new things, you know? So being able to bring that whimsy of working on something that is your own over to work for hire, but also being able to keep the structure i suppose of work for hire into creator own stuff if you want it to be successful you know because like sometimes it's really easy to put things off and say okay we'll just we'll take it slow we'll do it as needed but start putting in some deadlines for things and you're going to be way more likely to get your project off and and running so making sure to use the the positives for both and not to get caught up in the negatives of either. <laughs> sure. mm-hmm. I love writing. I hate editing. There's an old Regina Spector song where she sings, you can write, but you can't edit, edit, edit. If you guys know that song, it gets stuck in my head all the time when I'm, when I'm in that part of the book where you've worked really hard to create something and you get married to a particular format and then you got to scrap 10 pages or add eight or force in a new character. Uh, that's always the most challenging part of the creative process for me. How about for each of you? What are some of the challenges or pet peeves that you face when you're getting your books ready? What are the things you hate doing along the way? Man, I don't really like writing. <laughs> I don't really like drawing what I've written, you know, because that's what I what I really want to do. Writing is just a means to an end for me. You know, 
um, like when I'm writing Heart of the City, I am writing um, <clears throat> three months of storyline ahead of time so that I'm not waking up every morning and be like, what am I going to draw today? No, I'm like super prepared. But the actual writing of that, I just, I all of my ideas come in like uh, scenes in a movie in my head, you know? And so I'm already imagining how I'm going to draw it and what sort of funny little visual gag I'm going to do and all of that process. That part is most fun. But having to like write it out in a way that the editor understands, <laughs> you know, the tool that is needed for communication. Yeah, that's the part that I find is the hardest. I think it's because when I write versus when I draw, when I draw something, I end up with something beautiful looking back at me. Even if it's ugly, it's something beautiful because it feels more tangible, like something I've made. I don't have that feeling towards looking at a block of text, unfortunately. And I think that comes from me not really enjoying the writing process or writing at all. <laughs> so <laughs> I think if I were more of a writer, writer, someone that writes for other people as well, I would find more joy out of it because I don't write for anyone else besides myself. And I guess my editor, it, it feels more like a, a slog. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, Marcus on Jamie, same question. What are the parts you hate? Uh, go ahead, Jamie. <laughs> for, <laughs> for me, it's timelines. It, it, it's uh, if I feel rushed, I'm like my own biggest critic. So it's like, okay, I can tell that was rushed. I can tell I got to take my time on this. So I hate this page, love this page. Um, writing, I, I've written one story that that's been published and I actually liked it more than drawing. I, I feel like I was able to visualize what I wanted as I was writing. So it was kind of easy for me. Like I knew what I wanted to see. So it was easier for me to write that way. So I don't know if that just comes from being an artist that made it easier to be able to visualize what I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I got to work, when I got to pick the artists I worked with, I, like I picked someone who I knew would be able to, you know, put out on pay, paper what I was envisioning in my head. So uh, time timelines, I hate. That would be mm -hmm. the big thing. And then not being able to get what you want on the page. <laughs> right. Uh, Marcus Lund? Yeah, I wouldn't say hate any parts, but I'm a very organized person. And so I always want to approach every single comic. Like, I'm going to write three pages a day. I'm going to do like, uh, you know, 20 pages in a week or two weeks or whatever. And it almost never works out that way because <laughs> I also think very visually, like a lot of times I'll just dream an issue mm -hmm. and then write it down. So it's like, you know, it's a lot of thinking and waiting. And then, and then I'll just write down a lot of pages at one time instead of working every single day. I try to do little things like I'll work on parts of the story or like elements or dialogue but as far as writing the pages go i wish that i could just do three pages a day it just never it's never really happened for me you know i could write a whole issue in a day or you might take me two weeks to write an issue it just it really depends i feel so the I same like way that. that's actually like how i organize like getting my three month uh, backlog of story done mm -hmm. is I have a deadline and I put in my calendar right on these days, you know, but yeah. some of those days, <laughs> it's just not happening, you know, so I try and give myself a lot of space for 
waiting for those good days. <laughs> yeah, right. And I do the deadlines for a whole team, you know, colorist, um, illustrator, you know, I even, even for the publishers, I'll do even more detailed ones than they give me. So just so we have, we know how much lead time we have and, and all that. So I like that. I like structure. I've always been that way where I'm very creative, but I'm also structured. So even if I went on a vacation, for example, I'm going to plan out on a spreadsheet, every single thing that I want to do on a vacation. You know, I love the writing process. So when I actually sit down and then I get inspired or I have all these ideas for an issue or an arc or whatever, and I sit down and actually bang that out, it's very satisfying, but the waiting sometimes for it to, to spark through my fingers can be aggravating. I spent uh, four years making a documentary and it was flying everywhere and interviewing these people and assembling the story. And you collect this giant spider web of storylines. And then you sit down and go, what's the story we're telling? And we had to prune 90% of what we had gathered in order to fit it into a 90 minute film. Then it's editing the content and sorting through the stuff. And then it's uh, waiting a year and a half for the professional editors <laughs> to put it all together. It's so much work when you sit down and figure out what it is. When I'm writing, I just get to put the words on a page and then click send. And the edit, the edit is what I hate. I can edit, but that's the part I hate. I just, I want to like, I want it to be a blog. I just want to write it and put it up and be like, hey, everybody, here it is. That's one of the reasons podcasting is satisfying is it's super edit light, which is, oh, yeah. which is a nice well, If you approach it that way. Now I did a podcast and I, I really got into the editing, you know, and I would spend a lot of time on the production. And that's when I realized I can't do this podcast anymore. <laughs> So now I just do podcasts where I don't have to edit. I just come on and guest host and then somebody else does it. I don't worry about that. So Steens, you received the, or your book received the Dwayne McDuffie award. Uh, Dwayne McDuffie, I recently did an episode of my podcast focused on the character Moses Magnum, who's one of the few black villains the X-Men have ever faced. And I got to read his uh, chronology front to back. Dwayne McDuffie wrote an incredible series called Deathlock in the nineties that I read as it came out, but had never read again. And I didn't understand who Dwayne was at the time or the edge of what he was trying to put into comics. You mentioned a minute ago seeing, uh, you know, Brittany Williams art and how that affected you. Seeing representation in our creators and seeing different types of stories told is so crucial. And as queer people, we're certainly seeing that in the last 10 years or even the last four years, more than ever before, diversity in our creators and diversity in our stories. I would love to, and I know this is a general question, but uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on the need for representation. Uh, and who were the characters that you saw representing you uh, as you were uh, growing up and, and breaking into the industry? Yeah, no one. <laughs> like, they just, I did not see anyone that felt like it represented me whatsoever. Yes, I think the only thing that actually felt like a true representation of me was the book Queers All Get Out by uh, Shelby Criswell. And it is about Shelby just kind of thinking about all of the non-binary um, queer people of our past that were have always been there and uh, how they've always been true to themselves. And the entire thing, it was all non-binary people of color and that's when i was like oh my god like that feels like me this is me like i can't believe this has taken me so long to to see some some sort of reflection whatsoever but that was the, the first time because you know a lot of times when you're you think about like queerness especially mainstream queerness it is a little homogenized you know and 
it doesn't look like the reality of the world that we live in. So to see a book like that, even though there was literally not someone that, you know, looks exactly like me, <laughs> it was still the idea, you know, of a, a non-binary person of color living their truth and not feeling that they have to explain it, you know, like, that's another thing I hate doing is like explaining my identity. It's like, I barely have the words for it myself. So I'm not yet educated enough <laughs> about myself to teach you about my own identity. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's necessary because representation is what got me into this industry. You know, it was seeing Brittany Williams name that even made me consider doing comics, which like, Think about that. Someone who has been reading comics for years, goes to all the movies, has been watching the shows, has been getting the books from the library and like never wanting to return them, never consider being a comic artist. I literally have a degree in art, you know? So it's like, and the reason why is because if you don't see it, you truly will not believe it. You know, it won't even come to mind. So I think it's important because of the creator standpoint, but I also think it's important in the business side as well. Editors need to also be people of color. Otherwise, these editors are only pulling from the people that they know. And as we all know, a lot of white people just know a lot of other white people, you know? <laughs> so it's like, if you want to have some variety, you need to have variety in all levels of this business, not just the creators and the characters. That's like bottom row. I'm talking marketing, I'm talking sales, I'm talking back of house, uh, you know, conventions, like you need someone to, I don't know, I just feel like it's the smartest thing to do if you want to cover all of your bases, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to have them uh, the most diverse crew, you're less likely to run into issues, you know, where you're like, I don't know if this is an okay thing for us to do. See the a Mexican Heritage Month covers for DC, you know, making them all about fucking oh, food. Yeah. Is that all Mexicans like, have Let's slap a burrito in there. Like, <laughs> it's, crazy. It's, it's, like well, it's crazy to me. It's crazy. It flames on the side of my face. <laughs> Clues <laughs> reference. I love that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I just, I feel like representation needs to happen on all levels. And if the people who are in power currently are not taking the effort to do that, it is because they don't see it as worthwhile, you know? So, and, and, I and, not, and not having just the token character, right? We're about to read a comic book that has like 18 white guys, two girls and one Egyptian guy. <laughs> and that's, and that's the whole cast. Uh, it's seeing, seeing queer, complicated, uh, female, complicated, black, complicated heroes and villains and everybody mixing together it's the world, it's the planet. It's, it's, it's changing the target audience from one thing to another. If you want support, you've got to let people see themselves represented in your pages. But when you have representation in the creators as well, I think it changes the types of stories being told. Uh, yeah. We're seeing so many uh, new mutants as an example in the modern books. Uh, we're seeing recent stories by Vita Ayala and Danny Lore and Charlie Jan Anders. And it's a completely different level of storytelling than things that are being, being done in other places using our same classic characters, but they're different types of stories. And it really, really matters. And it really affects the way we read the comics. Uh, and you see people who are very heteronormative who are angry about this idea of representation. They're messing with my characters, but the characters have always been 
diverse and they've always been queer and they they are just being told by more authentic voices now i think it's really crucial i mean uh, look if we're gonna say that you know america north america is a melting pot let it be <laughs> you know let it be that melting pot if if you're not getting the kinds of stories that are varied you're painting a picture of the world that isn't accurate you know like if you see a comic book and uh, okay, so like when I first got into syndicated comics, I was the third of three nationally uh, syndicated black women. I'm non-binary, but it's fine. That's it's fine. <laughs> but number three out of three ever, which is crazy because uh, come on. And so because of that, the kinds of stories that I'm telling, which isn't just about a black family, you know, you have to think outside of the box. So like they live in Philadelphia in heart of the city and Philly is like 80% black. Why doesn't Hart have any black friends? Why are there no black people in the background? Why are there no black people in her school? Like if she lives in the city, like that doesn't make any sense, you know? So what they're doing is they're painting a picture of a world that simply isn't true. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to have like, you know, pure fantasy, <laughs> you know, where like there are no, uh, you know, humans at all or anything like that. But if you're trying to represent a world that we live in please let's represent the world we live in let's look at what we actually see don't silence any voices don't cover up you know all the different kinds of stories that we can be telling it's right there let's just use it in a former lifetime i was a mormon closeted kid who served a mormon missionary like the guy with the little tags and ties and i lived in philadelphia God. for two years knocking doors trying to teach people about jesus isn't that terrible <laughs> <laughs> But I spent a lot of time in Philadelphia, and you're absolutely correct. It's a very, it's a very multicultural, uh, diverse city with all types of representation yeah. of, uh, of so many different races and ethnic groups and even religions. Uh, it's it's a beautiful city. I love it there. Actually, um, I got to say, I don't think that's terrible that you that that happened to you because you were raised a certain way, but your mind was opened up enough where you could change. And I think that's that great. is like that's amazing. It, it took me a so while. You just like get stuck. <laughs> I mean, my, my wife is from the South and her whole family, they have like one viewpoint on every single thing. They never leave that area, they yeah. never, never go anywhere. They don't experience anything in life or people in life. They just think there's just one little bubble is all there is and that's all that matters. But, but Tracy, I mean, she got out of it. You know, she's a red haired, blue eyed, you know, Southerner and she completely <laughs> left that, you know, that religious yeah. bright wing, just racist thinking and um so to me that's like the biggest accomplishment because you don't get to really choose where you come from yeah exactly. so it, it's a matter of um you know, you know who you are and what if you're going to be willing to learn more and experience more and open your mind your heart to other things so that's amazing to me chad thank you and success I I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to have a career where I get to help people find their authentic selves and to write. I, I've, I've published a memoir. I get to tell stories about helping people leave those things behind. Those, those are really kind words. Thank you, Marcus. On also, two years is a really long time to <laughs> knock on doors. It is. Two years is like a lifetime for knocking on doors. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I could pick all of your brains about so many things. I want to I want to give Jamie just a, a brief focus quickly uh, as we're transitioning to the issue review. Jamie, your art is gorgeous. I just want to make sure people understand how beautiful it is. I, uh, I recently messaged you uh, again after having seen your Imperial Guard redesigns. I love the Imperial Guard. Uh, watching you take classic characters and put your spin on them is a, is a beautiful thing. Uh, I know you uh, have a deep love for the X-Men, or at least seemingly. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing online with these characters. It's so fun. Uh, it, it started off as a birthday present for a friend. He loves Dazzler, and I was like, I'm going to give him an original Dazzler piece that only he has. So I kind of just took all of her outfits that I loved and merged them into one costume. And then it was so much fun. And then I like look back on my art and it was like, wow, I've been redesigning for a really long time. So like in the early 2000s, when the He-Man I mean, cartoon came out again, I redid all of the She-Ra characters. And then uh, I did all of the uh, Legion of Superheroes at one point. And then it was just like, I haven't done the X-Men yet and they're my favorite. So it just, I just started doing characters. I started grabbing costumes that I loved and elements that I love from each costume and merging them into one. And at this point I've done 71 characters, I think now. Amazing. And I have, I have sketches for like 20 some more and I have ideas for like another 50. So uh, I, I, it's, just, it's just really fun. Like I would, like I have people come up to me and they're like, why, are, why isn't Marvel using your outfits? And I was like, I don't know, put me in touch with someone. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, like, like I, I, I had this whole idea. So like with all the stuff with like Krakoa that's happening right now, I, I get so mad because I was like, in 2017, I started my own idea and it was pull all the mutants and have them have their own homeland. And there was like, a, there was a council of characters that decided the fate of mutants. And now it's like, now they're doing it in the comic books and it's not mine. <laughs> yeah. And they also have that, <laughs> that whole ball that they do where they dress up in the gowns and everything. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah Dowderman does a, I think it's how you pronounce his name, Russell Dowderman. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Really cool designs, actually. Super yeah. pre super preemptive announcement, but I just booked Russell on the podcast, and I'm so oh, nice. it's not happening for a minute, but uh, I'm I'm thrilled. Uh, Steens, are you an X Men fan? I am an X Men fan. Yeah, I. Uh, well, you know, when I was working at the comic book store, it was at the very same time as Avengers versus X Men, so I had to choose a side. <laughs> no, but I I definitely love the the X Men. Um, the because remember I was saying I really got into it to begin with from the cartoons. Yes. So the X-Men TV show from the 90s, the uh, X-Men Evolution from the early 2000s. Once I watched those, I wanted to read the comics. And I think that's just like so important that, you know, comic book readers understand that sometimes it is the cartoon that gets people into the books. Because I find that sometimes people are like, well, well, you didn't start reading the comics until when? And it's like, hey, calm down. <laughs> At least I'm reading them, okay? Everybody uh -huh. has to have a gateway, you know? Yeah, exactly. And the animated TV shows are definitely my gateway. Well, um, and the cartoons you can sit and watch. The comic books, you sit down and you're picking up number 578 of something, and it's daunting. These characters are decades daunting. of history. Well, they're yeah, bringing I mean, that I cartoon didn't... back, too. Are you, are you mm -hmm. excited about that, Steve? 
They are. I am mm-hmm. excited about it. I will definitely be watching. Mm-hmm. Um, the the yeah. podcast immediately prior to this one is Jerry Gaylord, who's one of the the artists or designers on the new cartoon coming out. We got to talk about oh, it. This is great. Dang, that's yeah. so so cool. But yeah, if you guys I, have never met Jerry and Penny Gaylord. They're amazing people. Jerry's like, so much fun. He's so great. I I, yeah. I really enjoyed my time with him. Uh, Steens, who's your favorite X Men uh, hero and villain? Uh, Magic uh, is my Ooh. favorite hero, Miss uh, Rasputin. Um, I think it was because one of the first X Men um, comics I ever read was hers uh, when she was uh, in that freaking hellscape. <laughs> And Storm had to say Limbo, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, I I saw that and was like, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) I love her. Um, And then villain, I guess it's kind of like, really depends on who you talk to, but I'm going to say Namor. (laughs) I I find him villainous. (laughs) But even though people love him, I, I just think he's so fascinating to me Mm, there you go nice this is my this is my therapy wall too when i'm doing (laughs) zoom therapy and if i lean one way it's shirtless kazar and if i lean the other way it's shirtless namor and my my clients all know that i'm gay clearly yeah that's what he's there for did you guys see the new black panther trailer Mm -hmm. with the namor the wings really really cool Oh, we host yeah. uh, we host a monthly criminal trial on my podcast, and we did the trial of Namor a few months ago. So I literally oh, read his yeah. whole chronology. It was it was a uh, it was a lesson in comic book history. Let me tell you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I really really like him. I think there's something about um, really vain heroes that I love, which is like one of the reasons why I like Mister Sinister as well. I just like if they know they got it, <laughs> they act like they got it. And that's what I like to read. <laughs> um, we're going to transition into our issue today, which features my favorite villain, Sauron. And when I told the, this panel before we started, they're like, why? Let me answer why. Sauron <laughs> is so camp to me. He's just this, uh, I think a lot of villains need deep complexity and motivation and Sauron doesn't need any of that. He just wants to (laughs) eat you and or rule the world and or turn people into dinosaurs. And there's something so simple and delicious and ridiculous about his power set. Uh, he's, he's delightful. I really, (laughs) every time he shows up on a comic book, I'm like, yay, it's Sauron. Uh, Sauron in the modern books is obsessed with like dinosaur rights and like I want to conquer the planet for dinosaurs. We get a very different type of Sauron here in this book, which is going to be fun to talk about. Um, uh, Steens, is this your first 60s X-Men book ever? Uh, Gosh, I would say no, because when I first started working at the comic book store, uh, they had a library program where basically I can read whatever I want as long as I brought it back within a week. So I definitely have read a lot of the old X-Men stuff, but I'm more familiar with House of M and Forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. what was the comic store that you worked at in St. Louis? Star Clipper. Oh, I've, I've been there. I actually signed there once. Oh my gosh. What yeah. year? Mm, that's a good question. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know. I don't know. When did yeah. you leave? Uh, so I left in 2015 when the store closed. Okay. So I would have signed after that for sure. It was probably like 
2017, 2018. Oh, okay. So you may have been there when my husband was there because he continued to work for the company when it was purchased by Fantasy mm. Books and still works there. So it's yeah. very possible they're, they're that great. you have met him. <laughs> they did a, this for my book, Voracious, what a, about a chef who travels through time, kills yeah. dinosaurs and serves them at a restaurant in the present. Oh, oh Sauron would be so pissed. Sauron. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> well, it's funny because the very first dinosaur we put in there is a Quetzal coatless, which is like basically... <laughs> Uh, pterodactyl on crack yeah yeah my uh, my friend terry blast just did a reptile series where he featured the quetzalcoatlus as uh, as reptile's favorite dinosaur it was fun if you haven't read it it's a good read okay. um okay so let's jump in for today uh i'm having so much fun and every time i do these interviews my brain is like buzzing with like questions and ideas and I'm, I'm just it's such an honor to sit down here with the three of you thank you for uh for being here um this book is from september 1969 which is uh put into context this is just before man lands on the moon so this is how long ago it was roy thomas is taking a little bit more creative liberties with the x-men he's brought neil adams on board the art is just fucking beautiful especially when you compare it to what was coming just before but the book is only six months from cancellation at this point most people join the x-men with claremont in uh in the the later 70s so we have uh this is uh this is the era of the x-men where they're just starting to soar on <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Pun> intended. <laughs> Fun unintended. Thanks for having me. I'll, I'll be leaving now. <laughs> I am. I am a dad. Steens. There will be a dad, dad jokes, dad jokes dad along joke. the way. I know. I'm the same way. It's a dad joke is the best joke. <laughs> uh, so in this issue, and just to just to give a little bit of uh, preemptive energy here, Roy Thomas seems to be calling upon some literary classics and taking a little bit more creative liberties. The books are doing like three issue stints, which is a little bit different right now. Uh, so we've just finished again the Sentinels arc. Uh, Roy Thomas is writing Neil Adams on pencils, Tom Palmer on inks. Both Neil and Tom have just passed away this year in 2022. Uh, Sam Rosen is on letters. We don't know who does the colors. They didn't credit back then. And of course, uh, Stan Lee on inks. Uh, let me hear your thoughts on the cover uh, before we jump into the book. We have a dinosaur man in uh, green pantaloons floating over the X-Men who are cowering beneath him as he breathes some sort of strange energy down upon them. Uh, Jean Grey is in a very weird pose, and and uh, Angel seems to be hit, getting hit right in the face. Uh, let me know your thoughts on this uh, on this cover. What do you think? Well, I'm fascinated by Sauron's outfit, and, and judging from the X Men's expressions, I think they were looking up and thinking the exact same thing. Oh my I God, what is he wearing? How the fuck did that Pteranodon man put on overalls? Because what <laughs> is happening? How does he do it? Well, and he changed color too. Right. And he doesn't have like, it's like they colored the overalls all the way, you know, they're overalls on here on the cover, but on the in, inside, he just has pants. So that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> I have found that like covers like have such like artistic license with these characters sometimes. It's like, did you really look or were you just trying to get the, the drawing right? Because I get it. <laughs> I get it, but it's not the same. I think it's just like so interesting that we don't see his face at all. And like so many uh, evil creators that you are evil characters, you just like, you see their menacing smile or anything like that. This like kind of fools you. This makes mm -hmm. you think, what are they doing in this poor pterodactyl's way? You know, <laughs> like- right. This book does a lot. This book does a lot of attention on Sauron's backstory, and some of yeah. it doesn't make sense. We'll get there. It seems very heavily to draw on the Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde 
uh, story as well as the Lord of the Rings. We'll get there in just a minute. Uh, but let me open the book for us. On the uh, on, on the first page, we get this full page splash of Carl Lycos, who is Sauron's uh, human identity, uh, using some sort of device to drain energy, psychic energy from one of his patients. Lycos is a psychotherapist or a, or a psychiatrist, which is why we asked that question at the beginning. And uh, he is just looking crazy as he pulls energy into himself. Uh, he's having a small orgasm <laughs> as the man in the chair does not even know what's happening behind him. Uh, flipping to pages two and three, I'll just cover this very quickly. We have a number of characters who are kind of left over from last issue, and they're kind of just crammed in really quickly. So we've got basically every mutant that's appeared in the X-Men, except for Professor X, uh, who is dead, Magneto, who is missing, and the Changeling, who is the shape-changing character, who will eventually be revealed to be the guy that died in place of Professor X while he's hiding in the basement, letting everyone believe he's dead. So Roy Thomas is starting to see the idea. They even say out loud, like, the Changeling is missing. Uh, that's reference to what's going to be revealed in just a few issues about Xavier still being alive. The characters we see here, we've got Mesmero, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, Blob, Toad, Banshee, Mastermind, the Living Monolith, Vanisher, and Eunice the Untouchable. So it's quite a mouthful of characters. Uh, Judge Chalmers is kind of cleaning up the mess. Larry Trask is seemingly kind of comatose a little bit here. He has forgotten he's a mutant. His father, who is the creator of the Sentinels, has designed a medallion that takes away his memories of being a mutant, but also blocks his precognitive abilities. We're going to do more work on Larry in the near future, but we'll leave him here for now. But he does show up again in another Roy Thomas book in the Avengers in a couple of years. Uh, the uh, the X-Men uh, make sure that Chalmers is going to take care of all of the mutants that remain captive. And then they fly away in a Sentinel's jet to go back. Uh, uh, Scott Summers, uh, well, excuse me, Beast explains that Xavier knew uh, Carl Lycos from something called Project Mutant, which is never something we've quite figured out what that is. There is a reference in the Deadly Genesis series about Lycos working with Magneto and Xavier in the Mutant Genome Project later in continuity, where it looks like they're just kind of trying to figure out who's on Earth. You can add all that into uh, that the the Krakoa stuff because they're keeping databases of all the mutants and their personalities imprinted into Cerebro, but that's never quite been actively explained. Uh, but they feel like they need to trust this guy in particular to help Alex, who hurt himself when his powers overloaded. Uh, Alex is Havoc, of course, who keeps absorbing cosmic rays and radiation. And when that happens, disastrous things happen. So they desperately need to get this man some help, although he does have a containment suit now, which is his classic Neil Adams costume. Uh, they are getting ready to take Havoc back. They're gonna drop Lorna Dane off on the way, but she says, actually, maybe I'll just hang out with the X-Men. There's not much going on for me. And last time I was home by myself, some sentinels broke through the wall and kidnapped me. So I'm gonna go hang out with you guys. Uh, Lorna is of course the future Polaris. There's an interesting little blurb narratively kind of shoved in between the panels on page four I wanna read out loud that Roy Thomas gives, kind of not in connection to anything else. He says, X-Man, mutant, homo superior, words that pale the cheek of a doubt-plagued humanity, which has ever hated the new, the strange, the different, feared it as creatures have always feared those who may one day replace them. And who is to say that mankind is wrong? What did the last Neanderthal say to the first Cro-Magnon? Which is interesting because he's giving you some kind of reason why the X-Men are persecuted, but also kind of siding with the humans, which is a weird, weird way to make you uh, make you sympathize with the people who are persecuting the X-Men and built, you know, the death robots that just hunted them down. 
so there's a, a, a quick summary of the first four pages. Any thoughts or, uh, or uh, comments from any of you based on the art or story as we've presented it so far? Yeah. I noticed that Polaris's hair changed styles from panel to panel. So she was really like getting her comb out and- She's got her magnesia. She can just- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she definitely wore what she wanted to wear any second of the day. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while since I've read like an older comic. So when I saw this, I was like, okay. <laughs> I gotta set aside the fucking time for this. <laughs> This is not a casual read. This is homework. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think honestly, like the the funniest thing that I was like, I hate this, but I love this at the same time is on page five when Havoc's foot like comes out of the panel and like knocks him in the head. And I'm like, who does like, why is it designed like this? Like, was this a what's What's the backstory? Is he trying to say something about wanting to kick this man in the back of his head? Or is it just laid out like that? <laughs> I think it, it's just a creative layout. I like could not stop looking at it. Uh, the layouts are really cool, actually. I, I really like the layouts. It's just that that first four pages is so heavy with dialogue and like yeah. explanation of what's happening. It's trying to wrap up everything that didn't get wrapped up last issue real quick. But Neil Adams would famously play with the panel layouts. He yeah. had a style of kind of trying to give you weird angles, almost like you were in the room, underneath, on top, yeah. in the center of. Uh, and so, yeah, that plant panel lit where you see like the foot into the next panel or uh, the reflection of somebody in someone's eye magnified, like that type of stuff he did all the time. Um, there's a there's a scene in the next issue we'll review where there's a double page spread of Sauron and the panels are taking place across his wings on his back. Like, so it's like Sauron spread out and then the, the action is happening across his wingspan, which is fascinating. Uh, he did a lot of that kind of trippy thing in the in the 60s, which is great. Um, marcus do you want to take us through the next uh, five pages? Tell us what happens. Sure. Um, so this part starts with Dr. Lycos finishing up a session of hypnosis on Mr. Tyndall, whose hypertension is miraculously cured. <laughs> possibly from that strange sunburst aura that's floating over him in panel one. Lycos then gives Tyndall some after-school special advice to eat a fuck ton of iron before he <laughs> abruptly slaps on a head mirror and transitions from psychotherapist to medical doctor so he can attend an injured Alex, a.k.a. Havoc. Alex is helped into the office by Gene and Scott in a super weird panel transition that I had to read three times just to understand the flow of it. But it turns out Alex has broken ribs and they need mending. I have no clue how Lycos makes that diagnosis using a head mirror because that's a device for inspecting nasal and oral cavities, but I guess <laughs> it makes him look doctorly. So we'll just let that little medical detail go. So once Lycos makes his expert assessment, Scott tells him that he and Gene will wait outside. But Lycos gets pissed and says, hey, slow your roll, Slim. Get the hell out and come back way later because I need to use my super secret Mendy methods on your bro in complete privacy. Gene has to calm Scott down a bit and she insists that instead of moping around the office, they should go out and enjoy the day because it will drive away the cobwebs, whatever that means. <laughs> Scott agrees. 
Scott agrees, <laughs> calling himself Somber Summers, and then immediately starts moping about Medicare of all things. Sheen and Scott drive away the cobwebs for exactly one panel, and suddenly the, they're home. In the new Maverick car that Warren's parents just sent to him for fun because they're billionaires. Like, here, have a car. <laughs> so they're home. They're back in the mansion. Scott has a bad feeling. But fortunately, before he can whine about something else, he gets zapped by, quote, welcome mazers as he opens the door to the danger room that he apparently forgot existed. We haven't seen the danger room in so long. It's been years. <laughs> yeah. So the next two pages feature Iceman, Beast, and Angel practicing in the danger room. The first page is mostly Iceman being berated by his friends for being young, inept, and sensitive about being shown up in front of his girl. His girl is apparently Polaris. I guess she's not called Polaris yet, Lorna, who doesn't particularly like that relationship label. So she uses her magnetic powers to activate a gaggle of metal tentacles to, quote, put the squeeze on the boys. And then finally, on page nine, in the middle of the danger room practice battle, Beast takes a moment to ponder how their brother mutants reacted from being released by Judge Chalmers. And we get to see the Brotherhood. I don't know if they were actually called the Brotherhood at this point. Maybe you know. No, they're not. So Brother Mutants at this point. They're looking a little disoriented in the room. I think they were knocked out or something and reawakened. And uh, we get a special visual treat on this page because Blob, uh, Eunice the Untouchable, and a bald guy who I think might be Mesmero. I'm I'm not positive. No, Mesmero is the green guy in the back. The bald guy in the shredded shirt is the living monolith. Okay, living monolith. They're all in their underwear looking very X sexy. <laughs> and that is five through nine. It is uh it is so fun to see these characters. I recently reread Chuck Chuck Austin, uh, good lord, Chuck Austin's run on the X-Men, and there's a scene where Lorna Dane is talking about how she dated Bobby. And someone's like, You guys never had sex? And she's like, Oh no, no, no. Bobby's the kind of guy you tolerated. He's not the kind of guy you slept with. Plus, he's super <laughs> <laughs> I think she calls him fun in this in this particular age. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do you guys have a favorite character from that like big splash panel of all the people there? Do you have a, uh, a Scarlet Witch is probably who's everyone's going to choose, but do you have a favorite character from that mix? I mean, it would have been Scarlet Witch, but she's in all pink. Like, where's the red? Which <laughs> I don't like it. I like that. I like the outfit with the pink and the red. In the last issue, Cyclops, Beast, and Jean Grey dressed in Quicksilver, Scarlet Witches, and Toad's clothes in order to fool the Sentinels. So they have their clothes back, which is a good thing. Yeah. I forgot that Quicksilver had that green <laughs> outfit, too, because I always think of him in the blue with the yeah. white, you know? Uh, Steens and Jamie, any comments on this section before we keep going? I, I liked Banshee and like how he was just like leaning up. He kind of looks like a dude bro. Like he's just <laughs> looking for like his Nick's beer or something. He's got his pipe. Well, yeah, he's kind of checking out the living monolith too. So. Yeah, he is. And he's got this like little out. smirk on his face. Uh, do you notice the guy way in the back that's just sitting yeah, there with his- I say, who is that? I think that's Larry Trask. He's just sitting there with his nose in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like he's been put in a corner like with a dunce hat. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Well, then who, who's down in the corner in front of Toad? That's Judge Chalmers. 
Oh, okay. He's the federal judge that's like taking responsibility. We see him again in that Avengers run I mentioned too, where uh, where Trask comes back with the Sentinels. We'll get there on the podcast eventually. Well, we're working our way kind of chronologically through, so we'll get there in a while. And the Vanisher is just like, he's staring at living monolith's feet or his ankles or something. It's really weird. I love like the he's Vanisher. He's the last minute arrival. He's right there on my wall. I love the Vanisher. He's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Steens, will you take us through the next section? Tell us the story of Dr. Carl Lycos. Yeah, so this is someone who, this is, so this explanation is by someone, me, who cannot suffer this fool at all. (laughs) 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 This is ridiculous. All right, so it starts off with this ridiculous spread. Like, this spread is so good that I feel like this must have taken him, like, hours. Because it's just like really well organized. But basically, our doctor friend is like, fucking finally. <laughs> like, I can actually do what I want to do now that these fucking mutants are out of the way. And uh, he's like excited because he's like, oh, yeah, now it's time. It's time for me to get that muty energy. And you can see his like Jekyll or the, his hide. Which one is which? Which one's the bad one? Jekyll's the uh, nice hide. one and hides the monster. Hide, hides the monster, okay. Well, Jekyll's like, no, don't think about that. Don't think about, like, taking someone's energy. You're supposed to be helping them out. And, of course, the, the hide is like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I feast on who I want to feast, just like how I feasted years ago in the cold. And so we go directly into a flashback where so he's a kid at this point and he's got his dad who was an explorer like assistant he basically is someone who can climb a mountain and tell you step in on that rock and not the other one and he's going out there with some dude named air anderson and anderson is always is just like he's excited he's like i love being up here on this mountain this is all about all the shit that i want to do and i'm the important one and i love it and he's got his daughter with him as well and then she goes missing. Tanya goes missing. I don't know how you go missing while climbing a mountain without <laughs> having fallen or being just swiped like a Cheeto by a seagull, you know? Like, so how did she get- <laughs> It was I, I, either I, up or down. Yeah. <laughs> she went to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> she went on a bathroom break. She went laterally into the mountain. <laughs> so for hours, they're like, where are you, Sadia? And then, of course, the, the the caption is like, but it was echoey because we were on a mountain. So, you know, maybe she didn't actually hear us. But it was the thought that counts. <laughs> and eventually, uh, young Lycos, he finds Tanya. And on page 12, he's got this, like, wide-eyed, monochrome shot where he's like i know that voice that scream is a the girl that i just met two seconds ago i'm so sure of it <laughs> it was a full page ago <laughs> it was a full page ago i learned her name she disappeared and i saved her in a matter of four hours <laughs> so he he's finds her he is a hero he's a he, honestly though like i would be kind of pissed that the client is going off 
the record you know like we you had a tour planned you know and it, is this in the savage land currently so they're they- on the they're on the island of tierra del fuego which okay. is an antarctic island they talk about that seems to be connected to the savage land because of the pteranodons right like right. that's what here. i was was thinking but it, it and then i asked myself well how is Lycos advertising for this he's like tour <laughs> of savage lands come with me and my son <laughs> through this mountain uh perilous do it at your own risk um bring so, your kids it'll be great <laughs> yeah this I mean, is the whole the premise way... of jurassic park <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're trying to make money okay they will spare no expense by, by taking these people into this mountain um so they're doing their job and he's got to go and find this girl tanya who he knows from her screen and uh she's getting pecked at by like at least 10 different you know dinosaurs pterodactyl looking things and uh she's not having a good time whatsoever uh but lycos comes and saves the day i don't know where he got this courage uh, but he's freezing in the middle of a mountain and decides let's go and so he starts fighting these pterodactyls he's thinking about how fucking badass this is he's probably actually scared but i know some part in the back of his mind he's like this is so fucking sick like i can't believe i'm doing this right now <laughs> i'm battling pteranodons in a mountain cave Who, I metal. this is not on my to-do list for today but i'm taking it and i love it um he's doing pretty good he manages to bat off all of them i really hope that in the future he is reminded of the strength he pulled out of himself at that moment (laughs) oh yeah this is my cat ripley (laughs) hi ripley great name um yeah she likes to be on all of my podcasts anytime (laughs) i hear my voice she'll come in here and do this so she's like it's my time so yeah so lycos has battled off all of these uh, Pteranodon. And, uh, one of my favorite lines from this is he, he says, uh, I think it's on page 13. Uh, no, it's on page 14. He says, and I felt the cold closing in once more. And I like that because it kind of, I think a part of it was the bite that he got, you know, from the Pteranodon. But I also kind of feel like he's like losing it. Like he is run out of energy, run out of you know, this buzz that was keeping him going. And then now that all of them are done, he's just like, that was a lot. (laughs) And these are officially, we don't know the origin of them, but they're like mutant pteranodons. This bite is what later turns him into Sauron. Uh, yeah. He's not he's not a mutant character. He got this like weird power. I, I, I'm going to blame Mr. Sinister they're, they're, they're or the high evolutionary. Animals. They were like experimenting on dinosaurs. And I don't know what happened. Yeah, he just got it was in the wrong place at the wrong time, to be honest. Um, so, yes, he gets bit by this uh, pteranodon. He immediately falls over because he just did the most, you know, batshit heroic thing he's ever done his entire life. And uh eventually the air uh the guy that hired them happens to also be a doctor and so it's like perfect fix my fucking son so (laughs) he took him there and he was like all right all right i'll fix your son that's fine and as he's like getting fixed he's like passed out and he's like dreaming of pterodons and 
about them gripping on him like ice. And I'm sure it's, it's not a good time that he's having, but eventually he wakes up and he sees Jaeger, his dog. And later on, after his dog moves, after he's touched him, his energy seems to be drained. And this is the beginning of his new power of draining energy because all of a sudden after he's pet this dog he's like actually i feel pretty good right now i don't know what this was <laughs> but it, it works so it's so a good job um and then the rest of this is just his story about how uh tanya can't remember anything about the incident like how do you forget that how do you forget that like is it just like a dissociation situation but um i can do that to you I suppose trauma can do that too. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Lycos is is saying, you know, he wakes up, he's in this house with this this girl for many years over time, and he's having to deal with the fact that anytime he touches somebody, he takes their energy, but he's not really stopping. He's still doing it. He just sees it as like, oh, this is a thing I have to do now, you know, is take people's energy. But I also have my eye on Miss Tanya over here. It says Tanya, the girl who became a woman. The girl who is now very clearly a woman now that she's got uh, titties. And they're reading uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. They, they, they uh, bond over dweeby ass shit like Lord of the Rings. So obviously they're meant for each other. <laughs> but his dad is like, I do not want this fucking dweeb to marry my dweeb ass daughter because she's going to continue to be a dweeb if they get married. And I simply cannot have that. <laughs> yeah. That's how he's become who he's become so far is he's, uh, he's got these powers. He's got this girl that is like, that he likes and he cannot be with her because his dad is, is anti-dweeb is what that is. So Tierra del Fuego for, uh, for listeners as well is a real place. It's the southernmost tip of South America, like extending down in an archipelago toward Antarctica. Uh, so it's often called the land of fire or fire land. You could even like read just a Wikipedia article about it. Mm. So this connection to the savage land, it's almost like these creepy dinosaurs got out. Something happened to mutate them. And then this kid got bit. And who knows what happened after that? Also the yeah. birthplace of the Dweebodactyl man. <laughs> Uh, Jamie, Jamie, take us through the last five pages and then we'll talk about this. And for listeners, if you if you have not read this comic, there are seven full pages of real estate given to setting up Sauron's backstory, which is insane for a 60s comic book. That never happens. Uh, so continue the story for us, Jamie. So basically, he gets really pissed off that the dad doesn't want him to be with Tanya. And he's like, I'm such a man of promise, but I'm poor. So he doesn't want anything to do with me. So he looks like dazzler a little bit in like x-men number 10 when she's using all of her powers and he's screaming about how tanya like sends him like erotic letters and he can tell that she loves him mm -hmm. but he's going to spend all of his money and everything on building his machine to help him suck the life force out of people and then he we get to another panel where he's like having his like power orgasm from the first page and then we get this really great panel where he has this really villainous uh, monologue while he's transforming into Sauron, where he even tells that he take, he's taking his name from Lord of the Rings. And then he just flies off into the night. 
So we get this we get this note from him about the reason he partnered with Professor X is because Professor X wanted to find mutants and he's always had this idea if I drain mutants energy it would be even better for me. And so it's when he drains Havoc's energy, this like cosmic radiation that like then changes him into a fucking pterodactyl, uh, which is amazing. And a lot of people will consider um, Lycos and Sauron are different people, different identities, kind of like Norman Osborn versus the Green Goblin. Uh, but many argue that they're the same. It's kind of interesting in the psychology of it. There's also like the Kurt Connors lizard of it all. Like there's the lizard brain that's just like, mate, fight, fuck. Like I just, I just like, what is mine is mine now. Uh, he's like, just gets super savage. Uh, uh, keep going for us, Jamie. Well, and then it, we we go right into the X-Men's living room where there's this news report of uh, people being, uh, is it attacked? No, wait a minute. It's someone stealing something. From it's like a, winged a robbery creature. committed by a winged man, yes. So uh, immediately, Angel's really upset because they're talking about him because he's the only mutant with wings. <laughs> so uh, he gets really pissy and he leaves and slams the door. Well, he, he says put on everyone, a super sweet outfit first, though. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, then then he come, he he goes out and then he's like, you know, what is, what's exactly he say? Uh, believe it, mister, especially when you're dealing with a fly boy who used to be called the Avenging Angel. <laughs> but before that, I just have to read his little speech as he's throwing his fit. God, he looks sexy in that panel, though. He's like shirtless <laughs> angel slamming the ground. He goes, maybe your back's broad enough to take it, Summers, but mine is covered with feathers and they've just been ruffled. I just like, <laughs> I, after I read that, I showed that to my spouse and I was like, this man is crazy. Like, <laughs> he is absolutely ridiculous. He really thinks that this is all about him because he also has wings. Like, do you know where you live, dude? Like, they're like, mutant is popping up like left and right. But anytime you see a winged one, it's your problem. Okay, Angel. <laughs> it just seems like a lot. Everyone's got a girlfriend but him there, there and he's mad. <laughs> I guarantee you he thought of what he was going to say before he said it. He's been yes. waiting to be able to say that his back is feathers and they've been ruffled. Like, mm -hmm. he's got a list of wing puns in his room. <laughs> yeah. That's why it sometimes doesn't feel like it totally makes sense. Because it's like, what? Yeah. Did he just say that because he wanted to say like a cool like bird pun? Like, we get it. He should change his name fine. to Wingnut. <laughs> 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 All right, Jamie, keep going. Sorry. Well, so then he just starts flying around looking for whoever this is. And they have this weird thought bubble where he says that he, he now to find out what kind of fish or fowl he is. It's like, what kind of fish has wings? Why did you even think that? This is like one of those guys that like lives off of like idioms and sayings. And he just like, that's just his personality. Like, Namor has wings, but they're on his ankles. <laughs> Well, and then, and then there's this part where uh, we have to mention this, where Scott's a little misogynistic and he calls, uh, who's he calling lady? Is he calling beast lady? Uh, I'm not sure which spot. Oh, yeah. So the, oh, so Gene, Gene says, then we're all agreed. And he goes, you know it, lady. You got oh, like, to read that, right that, to love. That, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's okay. Yeah. So he's being misogynistic to Gene, but it's like, Sometimes in 60s comics books, you're like, where's the word bubble? Where's that go in the continuity yeah. of the dialogue? <laughs> um, so he finally finds Sauron and Sauron's like, oh my God, it's the mutant named Angel. And he he wanted to look for him and he's so happy that he 
came to him freely and then he immediately starts zapping him in his eyes and angel looks kind of like he's about to die screaming your eyes your eyes <laughs> and these are sauron's first powers he can fly he can drain your energy and he can hypnotize you there are about seven yeah. more powers that will be added in the next 50 years <laughs> <laughs> and then that's the end of the issue what did you guys think? Uh, did you enjoy this read? What stood out to you? Kind of as we're wrapping up, uh, the art is my favorite. I think that uh, Neil Adams playing with the, the panel layouts, uh, the way he draws faces and angles is my favorite. But this is a lot of real estate given to a uh, villain that Steens cannot stand. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's, I mean, he's just kind of like a, he's just kind of like a bit of a loser, you know? And um... he saved a girl on a mountain. Yeah, and then he turns into a loser. It sucks. He had just like he had such good things going for him. He could have yeah. been, you know, kind of a cool dude, but he decided to be a nerd and not stand up for himself. Not a pedophile. Yeah, because she's a, a woman now. Right. <laughs> uh, Tanya, Tanya shows up in 1982 for a couple a handful of appearances, and then she's back in X Force. Uh, number five, when Toad wants Sauron as part of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, uh, she makes Carl Lycos drain the life from Tanya in order to turn back. So she gets killed uh, much later in the 90s. Uh, so she's, yeah. she's only shown up six or seven times, but she later dies to affect his transformation back into Sauron. Do you know if she ever sees or hears about a Pteranodon who calls himself Sauron? Because, like, if I were in her position, I'd be like, this is too much of a coincidence. It's obviously Lycos, you know? Yeah, she does She does find out that Lycos and Sauron are connected. In Chris Claremont's Marvel Fanfare stories, uh, Marvel Fanfare 1 through 4, he tells us some angel adventures in the Savage Land, and Tanya is a big part of Sauron's story at that time. Okay, good. Good. I mean, obviously it sucks because she yeah. doesn't, you know, make it out alive. But I, I would feel like if I were in her position and I saw that I would there would be something that I would feel like I have to say something you know sure. yeah. trigger, Here's the yeah. thing, you know like I happen to have been saved by a guy who I, I think turns into a pteranodon and I know he likes Lord of the Rings I think I know who this is you know <laughs> also he made my dog real sick that one time <laughs> yeah real sick I you know I actually like love the way that that was illustrated on uh page 15 because it looked like literally he was like sucking the color out of the dog's face, which is a really cool way to, to do it. Uh, Mark is on. Any final thoughts? Yeah, no, I enjoyed reading. I always enjoy reading these old comics because they're super cheesy, but they're just fun. You know, it's neat to see the origins and the characters that, you know, I didn't get into them until the Claremont run. You know, I never I, I went back and read a lot of these issues after I got into X-Men. Um, and they're very different, but um, it is pretty fun to read this. I mean, when Sauron's like, and I choose evil, I'm like, yes, I can't wait to see what you do with that. So, <laughs> and I hope he you get better for pets. dinosaur rights. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it, even though it's pretty cheesy. Um, it definitely confirmed for me that Scott Summers is a complete dick, um, just like Wolverine said in the movies. Um, but yeah, I, I liked it. And, and the artwork is, is terrific. You know, I almost wish Neil Adams 
came at a later date where um, the writing was a little more sophisticated, I guess, because I kind of want to see, I know he's done some stuff, but it would have been interesting to see him uh, work with like some other writers of the the modern times. Cause I think his, his panel work and just the way um, it flows is really good. If he had less text and, and maybe if there was like less panels on some of these, it would have been even, even better. Um, yeah. And we will get to this more next time, but his redesign on Angel's costume is stunning. This is a lot of people's favorite Angel uniform until he turns into Archangel. It's uh, it's beautiful. This red one? Yeah, yeah the yeah. red one's by with far the, the With the halo on the chest, it's great. Yeah. yeah I agree. Uh, Jamie, any final thoughts? Uh, I, I love the art in it. Uh, I, I, actually, I laughed a couple times uh, just because the expressions were so great. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm a big bleeding heart, so the, actually the part where he was uh, draining the dog. Actually, he was like, "Oh, I've seen it. I've seen a dog that was like frightened make that face before." So it, it kind of, uh, you know, it was too sad. And but then it was like they did. They he made really weird choices, which I kind of love. Like when they said Tanya becomes a woman, but then she looks like Cindy Brady, <laughs> <laughs> like with pigtails and everything. Yeah, and yeah, it was like. Like, she looks like she is in high school still, you know? She looks like she's like 14. Yeah. So it was, it's, this is one of those issues that you would love to see with like modern day coloring to see like how it would actually look. I had so much joy hanging out with each of you today. Uh, Margazan, it's always a joy. Uh, I, I really, be prepared for more invitations, Matt, because you're so much fun. Uh, uh, Jamie, it's great to get to know you better. And Steens, you uh, you represent something in this industry, in the space that you occupy, in the uh, the, the place that you represent, what you mean to people. I, I, uh, I'm so honored at the opportunity to just kind of chill out with you for a couple of hours and hear your story and what you represent. Our conversation about representation alone uh, just like makes my heart sing. Um, and you really, you really mean something. I, I, I'm so impressed. I have a, I have two children. My youngest is non-binary, and I got to sit down with them and show them some of your work. And when I told them you were non-binary, there was just this little glow in their eye that uh, it, it means something to see that representation. Um, so thank you for the incredible work you're doing. And all three of you, I'm just enormous fans of, of your work, your art, uh, and everything you're doing. So this is uh, this has been incredible. Awesome. Um, great to meet you guys. As yeah, we, great to meet you guys. Really, really fun. As we wrap up, let's uh, recognizing this episode's coming out October 24th, uh, where can people find each of you online? And do you want to plug anything that's coming out? Uh, let's go in the order of uh, Jamie and then Marcusan and then Steens. Uh, you can get me at uh, JamieFayX on Instagram. Um, I, I'm not working on anything right now except for my X-Men redesign project. And uh, But who knows? There could be stuff coming in the future. And then Marcuson. Yeah, uh, you can check out my website. It's Marcuson.com. M-A-R-K-I-S-A-N. Um, I'm Darth Son on Twitter and Darth Marcuson on Instagram. Um, I work on By the Horns and the second series by the horns dark earth is coming out now it's going to be 12 issues the fifth issue comes out wednesday i guess it'll already be out when this comes out but pick it up uh, if you want to stay in the know about by the horns you can follow us on social media uh, the handle is by the horns comic on all platforms facebook twitter and instagram and uh, you can listen to the metalheads podcast and your favorite podcast app or just go to metalheadspodcast.com to play the episodes and then uh, finally, Steens. 
So you can find me online. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram <clears throat> as Steens with one H. And uh, if you find me on TikTok, I'm just skating. So don't expect any comments <laughs> anything. I just put my skating videos up there. Nice. Um, and if you are listening, what was it, October 24th, you said? Is when yes. Uh -huh. Yep. Okay. So I have just finished all of my touring for the year. But if you want to read Heart of the City, you can read it on gocomics.com. It is on the front page. And uh, this week that you are listening to this podcast, we are starting a new arc. So it's a perfect time for you to uh, get started if you'd like to start reading it. And uh, keep your ears to the ground. I'm finishing my mini comic for Unico. If you're a fan of uh, Osama Tezuka, um, his stuff is, you know, incredible for me. Astro Boy, um, you know. So uh, my Unico co comic is coming out really soon. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. And I I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna throw this out there in the universe. Uh, October twenty fourth means that on October twenty third, Steen's finished side quest. Can you guys believe it? Who would have thought? Who would have thought? And yeah. then. Uh, <laughs> and then lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can find Graham Malkin Lane under Graham Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Graham Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. We're consistently posting new content from the people that we are interviewing on the podcast, as well as art from the issues. We have some great stuff coming up. Right around the time we release this, I will be putting out a Patreon episode focusing on the demons from the X-Men called the Ungarai with uh, letterer Ariana Mar, who is just wonderful. Uh, and then the next episode after this is going to be the uh, interview I did with Chuck Austin, uh, who has one of the most controversial runs in X-Men history. And uh, we have a lot of really incredible things to talk about. He's he's wonderful. After that, we have the trial of Alexander Summers. So the, uh, the, the, the big focus episode that I've been planning for months is finally happening. Uh, thank you everyone who was here. I had such a good time today. Thank you for your time and talents and uh, we'll see everybody back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review. 